Hi there, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupt Podcast, brought to you by the team at Disrupt Africa. I'm Gabriella Mulligan. And I'm Tom Jackson. Every fortnight, Disrupt Podcast wraps up all the big news from across the continent's startup ecosystems and brings you exclusive interviews with special guests. This week, as we mark the release of our latest report, High Tech Health, we're taking a deeper look at Africa's e-health startup ecosystem. But first, all the news from the last two weeks. After a couple of months of relative inactivity as companies adapted to the reality of the COVID-19 pandemic, African startups are back to doing what they do best, innovating and scaling their solutions. Standout developments from the last couple of weeks saw Nigerian fintech startup Paystack launch Paystack Commerce, a toolkit that helps African creators bring their ideas to market, while the Lagos-based Plenty Wacker, which runs a bus transportation network, expanded its offering by launching a B2C delivery service. South African startup Sempi, meanwhile, launched a new feature in its Bitcoin SV wallet that allows users to purchase prepaid electricity, airtime and data. Even corporates needed to rethink the way they did things in the wake of the coronavirus, but major players are here to help African tech startups. Google has tweaked its rebranded Africa Focus Accelerator to account for the pandemic, going virtual and selecting a bumper cohort this time of 20 startups from across the continent. More global brands are entering the startup scene as well. Disrupt Africa recently announced an exciting partnership with Coca-Cola to launch the Tracking Revolution Challenge, seeking tech-based solutions measuring the performance of Coca-Cola products in markets dominated by informal trade. Selected startups will earn the chance to pilot their solutions with Coke. Details on how to apply on our website. Beyond that, the news was all funding. Ingressive Capital announced it had doubled its African tech startup fund to $10 million, positive news at a time when investment was expected to decline. Fintech startups had a bumper fortnight, meanwhile. Three South African companies secured investment, namely LifeCheck, Planet42 and PayMeNow. And there were also rounds for Egypt's Money Fellows and Nigeria's Trove. The fintech-focused Catalyst Fund also announced it will provide grant capital and support to three African fintech startups, two from Nigeria and one from South Africa. Also on the fundraising trail was Egyptian edtech startup Zedni, while another Egyptian company, on-demand medicine delivery startup Jafar, announced it had raised a seven-figure US dollar pre-series A funding round to help it expand its team and launch a B2B service. Jafar is not the only health tech startup to have secured investment in what has been an extremely impressive 2020 for the space. According to our new report, High Tech Health, e-health startups have raised a total of more than $90 million so far this year, which is more than was raised in the previous five years combined. This unprecedented growth in investment has been spurred by a rapidly developing sector. Health tech startups are growing in number and telemedicine adoption is speeding across the continent. For this episode of Disrupt Podcast, we brought together some healthcare founders to discuss the opportunities and challenges in an increasingly exciting space. taking a deep dive into Africa's budding e-health space, which has suddenly had a very stark spotlight shone on it given the COVID pandemic. We could argue the silver lining of the crisis is the huge boost the e-health sector is seeing in Africa. The second edition of High Tech Health finds that the number of e-health startups in operation has increased by more than 50% since 2017. There have also been numerous closures, with the emerging space still subject to plenty of churn, entrepreneurs and innovators are increasingly busy addressing challenges in the African healthcare sector. I started playing in the space, say, four years ago. 
um, between four years and now, like it's it's gone like massively big. Um, we're probably close to hundred more companies than when I started. Funding has has gone up. Um, so when I when when we also started the company, um, SaaS based EMRs were like um, you know it was like science fiction we're, we're bleeding edge when we started doing that but now it's everywhere uh, we don't do that anymore but it's everywhere now um in the past past year to two years we've just seen like telemedicine platforms all over the place um a couple of years ago when Kangpe, which is now reliance health started started the product telemedicine it was they were the first it was almost bleeding edge they actually had to pivot away from that that's henry mascot ceo of nigerian health insurance startup curacell he says the types of people running health tech companies has also changed over that time there's been massive traction on the startup side, I would say that, you know, we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurs who don't even have healthcare backgrounds venture in the space, um, doing a bit well. Um, then obviously on the, on, on the adoption side of things as well. Yet for all the growth, the sector is not there just yet. The high churn levels mean a lot of startups fail. As for all the e-health ecosystem is developed, it needs a market to develop alongside it. Um, it's still where we would like it, uh, but but it's better than where it used to be. So there are a lot more hospitals now who are open to digitization. Um, health insurance companies are definitely open to it. Um, it it's something they are all doing at the moment. Um, so I would I would think the space has 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 grown more, and uh, obviously we expect it to get better over the next few years. Amelia Popper, CEO of Kenyan diagnostic startup Ilara Health agrees that the health sector has plenty of opportunities, but also many challenges. If you look at healthcare, in, right, there are three portions, uh, and I would say three steps, right? You need first to, uh, you go to a doctor, there is a, there is a consultation, so that's, that's primary healthcare consultations, and that's a clinic, that's usually physical clinics, or remote consultations, if possible, but that's very difficult in, in, in our markets. Once you've done a consultation, there is the, just some lab part, because you may need to do some tests, and then there is a medication, right? Um, now, the meds, so the pharma, is actually the biggest revenue driver in healthcare, in, at least in primary healthcare. So about 70% of the revenue of a clinic in, in that mid to low to small size clinic, which makes actually most of the healthcare in Africa, is driven by selling pharma products. So obviously there are, there's a massive market in pharma, and there's a complete, there's a full value chain, right, there import, in, Manufacturers, importers, distributors, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and chemists or, or clinics selling those, those drugs. There is a massive opportunity to improve this process, which is completely, which is, which is, uh, uh, which is not optimized. So that's where companies working on the optimization uh, of this process, bringing technology platforms to take care of stock management. That's where I see a massive opportunity. And that's where the M-Pharmas of the world and, uh, and other companies uh, which raised significant rounds in the past couple of years uh, are playing into. So that's one uh, piece of it. The second piece of it is actually uh, the, so all this, think of healthcare, right? There is data around. There's a data which, which normally should be captured at every single point of the chain. When you see a doctor, uh, when you, you bought your medication, where you did your lab test, et cetera. Now, this, this is actually part of what we call the NIMR, right? An electronic management record system. 
which, um, you know, uh, uh, that's something which is given in, in a Western world environment, but which is, um, uh, which is, uh, which tackles only, um, mid to high income, um, medical centers in, uh, in Africa. Um, the low to mid income, um, clinics are still pen and paper, uh, in majority. So there is a massive opportunity into digitizing uh, the healthcare data and providing this data back or, or giving this data uh, back to the clinics and to the patients. So that's where solutions like, uh, like Helium, Helium Health in, in Nigeria raised, I think, $10 million like, uh, two months ago uh, in another round. And Helium has been doing, um, has been implementing EMRs in hospitals for the past five years. So it's a massive, massive, uh, uh, massive opportunity. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a, however, it's a difficult, it's a difficult revenue make a revenue driver in mid to low income clinics. And the third part is actually what I've seen in the past oh, few months. There's a, a lot of companies trying to do telemedicine. And, and that's actually, while there is a massive opportunity, there's also a very difficult play. Why? Because, um, consultations, which is the, you know, the very first touch point of anyone going to see a doctor, there's a consultation in mid to low income in Africa, are actually free or very, or one or two dollars. So consultation is a loss leader. Um, while there is a massive need to provide consultations remotely in the COVID environment, for example, or also in environments where, you know, there is no available doctor uh, or is no skilled enough nurse to be able to perform a consultation, the question is who pays for it? Um, in, a, in a market where people are not used to pay uh, for consultations or, or pay very little. So we've seen a lot of solutions. I've seen a lot of solutions in, in telemedicine in the past few months. Um, I think the, the jury is still out there uh, in terms of how this will evolve into a, into a economically sustainable um, uh, business. And that there is, a, there is a, the third part, which is the, the diagnostics, which I think it's massive and it's completely, uh, completely, um, um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, comp it's a market which has no, uh, or is an industry which has little competition. Um, again, we know that, you know, half a, half a billion people in Africa do not have access to a blood test, uh, or, or cannot afford a blood test. Um, and, um, and the labs, um, target mostly high, mid to high income, uh, populations uh, in Africa. So there's a massive opportunity to bring this to mid to low income. Um, again, also question uh, around how, you know, who pays for it and how those people can pay for it. The COVID-19 crisis could prove to be a positive from one perspective for the e-health space, given its potential to drive behavioral change. Patrick Beattie, who runs Ghanaian health monitoring startup Redbird, says adoption of e-health services is being accelerated by the crisis. A lot of focus in this market has been on how do you decentralize care because uh, as chronic disease takes over the continent, that decentralization is necessary. And uh, with COVID-19, what we've seen is just an appreciation that decentralization is not just about convenience, it's also about safety uh, in this matter. And so I think as people uh, become more comfortable with uh, some of these changes, they'll recognize the convenience in it as well. And uh, we'll, we'll see this continue. Other founders are saying similar things. Here's Amelia. So I think we're, we're very fortunate to be in um, to be in healthcare because again, healthcare is is something which has been, you know, obviously it's 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 COVID. Well, COVID is, is a is a healthcare issue, right? So um, so a company tackling uh, healthcare issues 
which are either uh, preconditions or postconditions of COVID. Um, I think those companies um, should thrive uh, in this kind of environment. Um, so for us, it, the, what, what we do, which is uh, diagnostics targeting uh, non-communicable diseases, but also infectious diseases, um, this need, the need for those diagnostics was before COVID, but it's even more during COVID and it's going to stay there. Um, so we know very well that someone with, uh, with diabetes, diabetes is, is going to be much more affected by, uh, by COVID infection and potentially die than someone who's, who's healthy. So we do, we tackle, we, 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 we target non-diabetes, cardiac diseases, as well as a number of other, you know, respiratory infections, uh, which are related to, uh, to COVID. So in our case, it's been, you know, it's been pretty much business as usual. There's, however, a caveat. Um, all over the world, healthcare has, healthcare has been affected, mostly private, uh, primary healthcare has been affected by COVID in the sense that patients stay home instead of visiting a clinic. Africa is, has, in, in Kenya, has been a, a very similar trend, but for a very different reason than, than US or Europe, right, where hospitals have been completely... Uh, overrun by by COVID patients, therefore all the resources went out from primary healthcare into 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 uh, into hospitals. But in Kenya, clinics, small clinics, do not have patients anymore. Why? Because for two reasons. Uh, first of all, stigma around being um, having COVID and being sick. People prefer to stay home than being detected uh, and with COVID, and then you know neighbors don't talk to you anymore. Uh, government may put you in a, in a government quarantine at your own cost. So there's a massive stigma of, of having COVID. So people stay home. On, on the other side, small medical facilities don't have, don't know what to do with a patient coming with a cough or a fever. Uh, so they're unprepared and some of them just close down. And we've seen a loss of massive loss of revenue in those medical facilities up to 50 to 70% of lost revenue. Therefore, um, obviously the ability to pay for anything um, uh, went uh, went down. Whether or not this will recover fast, um, it's a different question. So there is a positive. I mean, there is a positive. There is a we we do something which is very important in healthcare. So obviously, in a health in a in a COVID pandemic, that's very important. But on the other side, uh, there is an effect on the economy, and there is an effect on the on the medical facilities in terms of ability to pay, which obviously affects negatively any business in healthcare. Ahmed Abu Elhaz, who runs Egyptian online psychotherapy platform Sheslong, is another founder reporting strong growth during the pandemic. The COVID-19 affected very positively uh, about our business uh, because uh, most of people uh, through the COVID-19 have a depression and an anxiety uh, and need to talk to uh, the therapist online to maintain their mental health. So they, they went to the platform and talk to the therapists. On the other side, uh, in the therapist perspective, all therapists now close their clinics and they want to practice the, uh, the psychotherapy with their patients online. So they went to Shazlong to uh, practice uh, to practice their work online. Uh, we, we actually grow uh, 3x through the pandemic. Uh, in terms of users, in terms of uh, number of transactions, in terms of number of revenues. Uh, so we see the, the aggressive growth through this area. 
Sheslong was a recent fundraiser, securing backing from Asia Africa Investment Consulting. The High Tech Health report finds that investment into e-health startups has increased dramatically this year, with e-health startups raising more in the first half of the year than they had in the previous five combined. As partly to do with COVID, even pre-pandemic, e-health startups were having an incredible 18 months investment-wise. Patrick thinks the reasons for the leap are twofold. I think it's two things, and obviously investors would maybe know better. But from my point of view, it's one, a recognition that uh, this is behavior change that will stick with us. And therefore, this isn't uh, necessarily a short-term response to COVID, but something that uh, is going to uh, be a strong business moving forward. Uh, someone who can capture uh, how to deliver healthcare in this moment will be strong moving uh, beyond this. I think the other thing is that uh, these are health tech companies are companies that do stand uh, to rebound faster than other companies uh, during this time. And so it is an opportunity, whereas uh, an investor might be looking to uh, wait on other sectors to see how things shake out. Uh, healthcare has an opportunity right now in the immediate future. The companies that really succeed in the health tech space are those that ensure they deliver solutions tailored for Africa. I would start with what's the definition of e-health. And I think uh, in, in general, we understand by e-health, uh, software solutions apply to healthcare. Uh, so I, I make, actually, I make a difference between, uh, between uh, I would say, technology-enabled healthcare and e-health. And, you know, you can always say that it's the same thing. But, but, but e-health, are comp- e-health companies are actually companies labeled, uh, companies which do something or so, which build a software solution uh, to solve healthcare issues. Now, the challenge is, as I mentioned in the beginning, you need an infrastructure first to be able to do something to, to apply a, a technology solution in healthcare. And it's, it's not only for healthcare, that's in general. Um, so when the infrastructure is broken, it's very difficult to just plug software. So a typical example would be in diagnostics, right? We cannot do diagnostics uh, and then, you know, uh, do blood tests or do ultrasounds or do anything else. Um Unless if there is a physical location when where uh, there, there's a machine which can do those uh, those tests, and that's where we place machines and we place technology on top of on the top of machines. In a similar way, if you think of uh, if you think of any solutions related to patient management, if there is if there is no uh, electronic medical records or no data, if there is no Technology platforms already implemented in those medical facilities. It's very difficult to plug a software on, on, on top of something which doesn't exist to solve a healthcare problem. In the Western world, there is infrastructure. So it's very difficult to tap into it. In the, in the developing world, the infrastructure is a problem. Um, so I think the, the challenge is actually this, this continuous circle, a vicious circle where you need the infrastructure to plug technology and, uh, and you need the technology to plug infrastructure. Um, and, um, you know, I think a good example would be if you sit somewhere in the U S or Europe and, um, you know, you, there are companies developing software to, to plug into, into, uh, MRI machines or into CT scanner machines, and then use AI to identify better than any doctor, um, uh, to identify the issues in an MRI, for example, or in a CT scan, but we still need a machine in Africa, there's no machine. So it's very, very difficult to just do technology and to just do e-health. So that's where I think the solutions for the healthcare in Africa are solutions with solutions which tackle both the infrastructure and the technology. So let's call them technology-enabled infrastructure players. 
Collaboration between healthcare companies will help the sector develop, says Ahmed. I think uh, we have to be uh, more collaborations uh, between the health tech startups more than that time. We need to uh, maybe acquiring each other's, maybe occupying, maybe make uh, a col- uh, make corporations between each other's uh, to uh, to sustain and to uh, make something big. look at the e-health space there from those that should know, founders of companies in the sector. Get your hands on the report for more details. One thing you might have noticed about that section of the podcast, however, all four founders were men. There are certainly female founders doing exciting things in the space, but it's undeniable that a present African tech in general still has a diversity challenge. Tom caught up with Neno Congo, principal at the Die Game Investment Company, to talk about how this issue can be addressed. There's been a recent focus on diversity um, in the African tech and in, and more broadly in, in technology investing ecosystems. Um, I think really what people are saying is, you know, are we relying on sort of uh, pattern recognition that excludes um, or is less favorable to um, women, people of of, um, in the U.S., the, the context would be people of color. In, in, in Africa, it, it's, you know, Africans versus uh, expatriate uh, founders. And I think that one key way to sort of uh, remediate this is, is really to have more uh, investors that are from uh, those groups um, and who have networks, uh, different networks or networks that overlap um, that can help remediate them. Um, I think the challenge is that you know, traditionally, um, you know, Africans, uh, women uh, don't raise as much money so that their their opportunity scope is, is limited. They have less ability to support um, those types of, of founders because they're less successful in, in sort of obtaining uh, capital. Um, look, I, I think that, you know, opportunity is um, distributed uh equally or normally across different groups. And so, you know, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I think there's been some academic work that proves that sort of diverse perspective and diverse teams outperform um, so that, you know, it's it's really to our own detriment as a society if we're not able to capture um, and support the entrepreneurial efforts, um, you know, in, in proportion at a minimum um, from underrepresented founders of any type. So, so you think that investment firms need to change in order for their investments to change? I do. I think, and, and there are two ways, right? So there are two approaches to this. One is that you hope that existing investment firms um, recruit uh, and sort of promote uh, and expand the role of women and Africans in their midst. Um, and the other way is that women and Africans found their own firms, Um but, you know, the, the challenge is we see that those firms tend to be less well capitalized. So either either works. 
Um, but I think what doesn't work is saying that, um, you know, we can't find qualified individuals to um, drive these efforts. Um, you know, if we take a page from some of the more recent activity happening uh, in the U.S. around uh, female fund managers, I think what they have found is that instead of, for example, you know, uh, there's sort of the weak argument, oh, we can't find any, you know, female partners to recruit into our firm. We would if we could find them, but none, you know, the universe is small to non-existence. And I think what people have found is that if you um, quote the requirements in a certain way, then you may not find um, any uh, female partners who have, you know, experience one, two, and three in a, in a very particular progression. But if they changed the, the criterion and made it skill-based, um, they found that suddenly, um, just by redefining um, the selection criteria, they suddenly had uh, a broader slate um, of, of women um, that could be, you know, put forward. And, and I think, you know, from, from my perspective, um, I think that that's really what we're trying to do is we're really trying to understand, uh, you know, me as an investor, you know, what are the, the sort of, um, not only can I redefine sort of the, the, like the traction proof points, can I redefine what, uh, background or relevant experience means to be inclusive? I mean, it still has to be relevant. I'm still looking for the same kind of, um, you know, performance, uh, metrics, but it's just sort of expanding those things to to perhaps include people whom uh, who you can't pattern match to to Stanford. Does the relative lack of diversity speak to the level of ecosystem development? I mean, I definitely think so. I think I think that in every ecosystem, um, you know, I don't want to call it capital, but energy needs to be recycled. It's not just capital. Um, it's the, you know, time and effort in, in sort of mentoring is part of it. Um, you know, it is infrastructure, both hard and soft. Um, but I think that, that without this concept of, of giving back, um, and again, it, it can also, you know, have a profit motive directly aligned with it. Um, ecosystems don't grow and, and thrive. So um, I do hope that, you know, as people, um, you know, come up in the ecosystem and the ecosystem matures, I think that's a better way to put it in Africa, that we'll see much more of this, you know, it's almost like, you know, it's like a circular economy um, as such. Um, look, I, I see it every day in my sort of um, activities. I mean, I know that I um, definitely make uh, a specific effort to um, look closer at founders from at African founders that that are less exposed, as I call it, I, I make a special effort to um, ensure that that female founders are getting um, equal visibility in our our pipeline, um, just to make sure that nothing is is overlooked. So, for example, some people think that a certain type of uh, I don't know aggressiveness is is a positive indicator. And, and maybe we see less of that behavior in our female founders. And it doesn't mean that they're any less effective in sort of, you know, problem identification and servicing their customers. It just may, may mean that they're less effective at pitching VC. Um, you know, I think what we want to see also in Africa is a broadening potentially of the types of capital. So I, I think one of the, the greatest sort of myths that 
circulates right now is that oh VCs aren't interested in in African founders and, and I, while I can't speak to um, you know VCs who you know display bias in their process um, I think what I can say is that sometimes I think there's a fundamental lack of understanding of the return characteristics or sort of who um, the LPs the the VC cl- the VC investors' clients are, and and sort of the the economics of um, venture capital, and sort of that informs, you know what I mean, what types of businesses work and, and don't work, um, and so I think sometimes, you know, people are starting businesses that need capital, but the, you know it's not the type of capital that venture is well suited for, and I think, you know, to the extent that founders. Um, can understand that and and look for those sources of capital and and in Africa in particular, what we need is we need more we need differentiated sources of capital so that if it isn't right for venture, maybe there's a different type of an investor um, you know that that it is correct for. So I think it's that type of um, diversity that we should be encouraging. Um, but you know sort of from where I sit in the ecosystem, I think that the real challenge is a is a lack of capital. You know, we don't really have institutional, um, a, a, a dedicated institutional LP base, uh, most African funds, and you know that limits um, the amount of good work that we can do. Um, you know, so not only in terms of you know the work of venture, but just the work of any type of in, in investor. There's there's just not a lot of money. What kind of damage is being done to the ecosystem by excluding female and African founders? I mean, many things. I mean, I I think we can be fundamental and moral or we can even be sort of a little bit more mercenary and commercial. So, you know, mercenary and commercial is perhaps where we're not backing the best businesses, the businesses that best address um, the, the local local problems um, so that, you know, we, we are less commercial than we could be. Um, I think the moral argument is really that, you know, Africans, I mean, Africa is not for expats, right? Africa is for Africans and, you know, women are, you know, a a significant proportion of the population and to not um, leverage or recognize the um, abilities of, of, you know, big groups of, the population or, you know, just seems ludicrous um, and wrong. Um, We're missing out on, um, you know, the talents of, in the case of women, you know, half the population. And that seems to me to be just wrong. We've seen some positive discrimination into the space, at least on the gender side over the last few years with female focused programs springing up. Do these types of targeted program help in the short term? I think to the extent that they encourage people to perhaps uh, get involved in entrepreneurship, um, teach uh, some of the skills around, um, you know, pitching to investors or being sort of um, investor ready, it's always good. I haven't, I was actually trying to identify, um, you know, a good source or, or, or resource. I feel like I've heard a lot of talk. Um, but have seen less. And, and, you know, while we're starting to see initiatives like 2X out of uh, DFC in the U.S. And, and sort of an increased focus around gender lens, there are, there are many different ways um, that people are choosing to address, um, 
you know, the good that comes from supporting women across the ecosystem. And so my view is, you know, um, yes, let's, let's have these programs, but let's, you know, not lose sight of the primary goal, which is sort of, you know, to get, you know, the right businesses funded. Um, so, you know, by putting people in, in pipelines, um, and sort of writing checks. I mean, that's that's the best way to do it. So, I'm all for initiatives that that assist people in sort of getting to the to the right place. Um, but then, when people you know are are put up for consideration, you you want there to be a, a systemic process that doesn't sort of downplay um, their abilities or downplay um, or falsely. I think that's probably a better way. Falsely um, assess their ability to succeed on sort of not-so-great criterion. Do we hope for a time when these types of programs don't have to exist? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I do. Um, I, I do hope that they don't have to exist, but I think, you know, if we're not seeing um, the results, is it because entrepreneurship is not, um, you know, and, and I guess a, a certain type of entrepreneurship, because look, let's be be clear, you know, you see female entrepreneurs all across Africa, right? Whether they're selling, you know, granats on the street or, you know, women do what they need to do to uh, support their their families. Um, and, you know, that kind of, you know, entrepreneurship by default um, happens. So, you know, what we're talking about is a certain type of, you know, um, high, high growth um, entrepreneurship. So, Again, you know, there may be women who are starting businesses that, that aren't suitable for VC investment, but, you know, maybe they're starting a manufacturing concern that, that's, I don't know, suitable for some kind of a revenue sharing investor. Or do you, do you know what I mean? And I think to the extent that, that Africa can have different types of investors who focus on different types of investments, that will hopefully um, incorporate um, more female entrepreneurship. So, I mean, there's definitely been progress progress made. Um, the impact of COVID-19 on funding is generally assumed to be negative. Um, funding is going to decline. Investors are going to become more risk averse when it comes to what money they do pump in. Um, is, is diversity going to suffer as a result of that? Uh, if history is any indicator, then it, it probably will. Um, I'm hoping not um, because there's also, I think, simultaneously um, a bit of a, a moment now where many people are I think globally recognizing um, many systemic inequities and, 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 or at least talking about um, remedying them. So we don't know if it's, you know, completely going to be remedied. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, but, but um, you know, history would suggest that, that, you know, maybe it's a moderated hope rather than um, uh, a completely unrestricted and, and enthusiastic one. My name is Gabriel Ekman, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of BAG Innovation. BAG is tackling the problem that most students in East Africa, upon graduation, are not well prepared to enter the job market. BAG is a digital platform that combines gamification and AI to solve this challenge. We cooperate with companies and universities to create case-based learning directly related to each course of the student's learning journey to increase the market readiness score of the students by more than 60%. 
After the student submits on one of our assessments on the platform, they receive feedback from both the employers and BAG in terms of career advisory. We apply gamification to enhance the onboarding, the conversion, the engagement, and the retention of the students. Today, we've already worked with over 8% of the students in Rwanda and been selected as the best edtech in East Africa. We are now looking for partners and early stage investors who are willing to join us after the summer to build the next generation of problem solvers. You read more about BAG on baginnovation.rw. And by the way, BAG stands for Building a Generation. Thank you very much. That's it for the latest episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in more information on Africa's e-health startup sector in general, or our report in particular, head over to our website. Tell your friends and colleagues to check out Disrupt Podcast on their favorite podcasting platform. And we'll see you again next time. In the meantime, stay safe. Bye. Bye.